You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 221 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Gina Militia. How are you, Gina? Great, Val. How are you going? What have you been up to? What have I been up to? Okay, well, I have, I've been to an art retreat quite recently and, um, uh, we did a lot of art, but <laughs> You'd uh, hope so. <laughs> yes, one would hope so. And it was hosted by this lovely artist called Felicity O'Connor. And as it turned out, her partner is a photographer. So it was actually um, a few days that was not only filled with much discussion about art, it was much discussion about photography as well. So shout out to Matt Clark if you're listening. Hey, Matt. Yeah. And, um, had an interesting chat with Matt because Matt is really getting into uh, black and white photography cool. and he's getting really getting into film and there were all of these film cameras lying around, yeah. which was really cool, some of them pretty old, um, some of them not so old, just sort of more like retro. And it was just really interesting to play around with them and remember the days of film. And I remember when I used to shoot on black and white film and we would, you know, do proofs and we'd have to process and develop the negatives and, you know, go into the dark room and dodge and burn and all of that. And life is so different yeah. now. And so few people these days have dark rooms mm. and it's not like, you know, you used to be able to just go to the local chemist and buy film. Yeah. Any kind of film. Um, even if you were just, I mean, if you were an amateur, but obviously there was film that you could buy from the professional labs as well. So Matt is experimenting with black and white film and he is buying his film online. Mm. Uh, and then when it comes to, um, developing it, he's getting it developed and he's, um, got the negative then. So what he's doing when he's got the negative is he is um, uh, creating his own light box and he's just doing that by getting a Perspex sheet. Mm. You would love this mm. because it's very MacGyvered. Um, he's just getting a Perspex sheet and shining a light <laughs> from underneath yeah. and then putting the negative on the top because he doesn't there, – there isn't a printing lab nearby, yeah. you know what I mean? So, um, and also when you get, when you print stuff off, if you then want to put it on your computer or manipulate it or anything, um, you need to print it, then scan it and then manipulate it if you want to. But, uh, but then if you're scanning it, you're scanning it in as a JPEG. And so what he's doing is he's got the perspex, he's putting the negative on there and then he's getting a macro lens and shooting the negative so that he has a raw file and then he is inverting that in 
in Lightroom or Photoshop or whatever and then able to manipulate the raw file and do it's a bit more flexible than if you just scanned the print. That's so, so that was kind clever. of interesting. He's MacGyvered a scanner, which is because I, I can remember when I was shooting film and transparency and then we just started getting computers and working on computers, I paid honestly – an arm or a leg and a leg for for Mm. scans, for drum scans, which were high-quality scans of my negatives and my transparencies. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah. That's so clever. Clever. What's the quality like? Clever. Um, So it does have that – well, obviously it's a raw file, so you can do a lot more with it. And he's actually going for a slightly gritty, slightly grainy look, but it's not overly grainy actually. And he's also getting that look like a proof sheet kind of look because of the yes. way he's shooting it, yeah. which, which he wants. And it looks really cool. And it's um, it, it's what is very surprising is that it's a you know negatives are small, right? Yeah. Um, so you would think because that, and I saw them on a large computer screen. Yeah. Um, uh, your negatives are small, but because he's using a macro lens to shoot it. It's turning out really well, and there's a lot of definition. So it was just a really interesting thing to to see the results of that process. That's so clever, and generally, that's Very how clever. all the best inventions come out because it's people yes. need something, and they just work out a way to. Mag- I love MacGyvering stuff. That's so cool. Yeah. Respect. You'd love to chat to him. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what's happening in your world? Have you been busy with um, the gold community? Yeah. So I'm working on, um, like I'm working on about three different courses at the moment. So there's a speed light course, there's a shoot anywhere, there's also a headshot course. So I've been creating tutorials for those, Val, and uh, I animate my videos. I do all sorts of other (laughs) stuff. I get right into it. I love it so much. Awesome. <laughs> and of course, all of these are avail- will be available to everyone in the gold community. And if you want to find out more about the gold community, have a listen to this. Hey guys, are you an enthusiast or pro photographer who wants to take their photography to the next level? I'd love the opportunity to work with you and I want to introduce you to my gold community. The gold community is an educational resource where members get access to photography courses and regular tutorials. There's over 200 tutorials with more being added each month. In these tutorials, I take you on set with me and I share my thought process behind scouting locations, posing and directing models, lighting and post-production, you get to see the entire shoot from start to finish, from surface in Sri Lanka using a single speed light to character portraits on the streets of Sicily using daylight or high-end studio shoots where I share all my posing and connecting hacks. There's also regular photo critiques, monthly live calls and heaps more. As a member, you'll also have access to my exclusive Facebook group and online forum where you'll be able to connect with other members from all over the world. So what are you waiting for? Join the Gold community today and start taking the kind of photos you've always dreamed of. You can check it out at ginamilitia.com. All right, let's move straight on to this week's topic, which is how to take your landscape photography 
to the next level with our guest, Mika Boynton. Where do we start with this, Gina? Tell us about Mika. Well, I first met Mika at a workshop for at the Bright Festival of Photography. I met her in person. I was already aware of her work, but I got to sit down and have a really good chat with her. And I just loved how she spoke about her photography and the passion uh, just comes through. Her love of photography is so obvious. But then, Val, when you look at her images, you know, Mm. it's not I wish I could take images that were this good that like that she makes that there are photographers that they kind of put their energy into the images and they can take a location and you just want to go there or you can feel the the, the peace of that location mm. or her images are almost spiritual when I look at them it's the They're only amazing, way I can Beautiful. describe them they are exquisite and like I, I would want them all on my wall and uh, it's no wonder that she's won as many awards as she has and she goes like it just her the, what she does it just sounds like a dream come true it's like she <laughs> flies to the remote locations and sees things that no one else sees she's hanging out of the, this is the bit that I got a bit like um uh, was a bit of a turn off for me, but she's an adrenaline junkie hanging mm. out of planes and choppers. You would like, you love doing that, don't you, Val? You love yes. hanging out of choppers. Yes, you love yes. it. Yeah, the so doors you'd off. be there. It's really cool. Yeah, nah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so she's traveled to like amazing locations like Norway and Patagonia and Namibia and Indonesia, New Zealand, Tasmania, all these amazing locations. And, and, uh, photography fantastic and the way she plans and approaches her shots is so unique I'm not going to tell you here I'd like you to hear it in the interview but there are very few photographers that I hear approach their landscape photography in this particular way so I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this interview I hope you enjoy it shall we have a listen absolutely Mika Boynton Mika Boynton, welcome to the show. How are you going? I'm great. How are you, Gina? Good. I'm really excited to chat to you. Now, we got to hang out a couple of weeks ago at the Bright Festival of Photography, and that's where I met you sort of in person, which was really yes, cool. And uh, we got to share a stage together, and uh, it was uh, really cool. Your images are amazing, and I really uh, want our listeners to find out about you and share your story. And so um, I have the biggest grin on my face, just so you know. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Um, so I can, I can still remember the exact day that I decided in my head that I wanted to be a photographer. There was like a light bulb moment for me. Do you have a moment like that in your life? No, but I do have a story. Do you want yeah. to hear the story? Yeah, of okay, so I loved art. That was where I started. I loved drawing and painting. I was the one in the art room at lunchtime and after school and all the rest of it. I didn't necessarily get the kind of encouragement that an artist would like to get to continue to do art um, in terms of like I had skills but not necessarily they were ever going to be groundbreaking. So I followed a different path um, and got into creative writing. But even when I was at uni, I was taking art classes and things like uh, colour um, color theory and yeah. studying 
um, different artists. And then, um, yeah, that kind of got on the back burner. I became a teacher. And then in 2008, I drove all the way up the guts of Australia and across to the Kimberley in my little little blue Mitsubishi Lancer and I arrived in the wet season and I don't know if you've been to the Kimberley in the wet but the colours are truly unbelievable. Like imagine the sky is like cerulean blue with puffy white clouds. You've got green, like fluorescent green grass that's like growing so like way, way up to your waist Um, and green boab trees and... (sighs) Red, red, red soil glistening with wetness because it's raining half the time. And I was just like, oh, my God, I can't paint this. Like this is incredible. I have to photograph it. So I had a little point and shoot and I was just shooting and then I got massively addicted. And then basically I just taught like just practice, 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 taught myself and then – um went on an awesome workshop at Karajini National Park um, with three photographers I'd never heard of, yeah. Christian Fletcher, Tony Hewitt and Peter Eastway. Who oh, are some of oh the three little known for Tony. Yes. Yeah, and everyone thought it was hilarious um, <laughs> that I had never heard of any of them, but I was really clueless. But I just, I just had this burning desire at that point to be like, yeah, I think that was – I probably realised it then. Like I was surrounded by other photographers and, and I recognised that they had the same thing as me. Like I – and and I, I – actually, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of a secret and I don't know if he remembers this, but um, I, I did have a burning desire to be like an amazing landscape photographer and I was in the car with Christian Fletcher um, at Karajini and um, – <laughs> I was partly joking but partly serious and I said, I bet you within five years we'll enter a competition and I'll get a higher score than you. <gasps> and instead of laughing at me, he said, you're on. And wow. that was my, like, I hope he doesn't hear this. But he probably would remember it actually. And I had this burning desire. I was like, I've got five years. I've got five years to to work and practice and be as good as Christian Fletcher. Well, I'm not as good as Christian Fletcher, but all I needed was one photo that was as good as his work. Anyway, I think it was three years ago, yeah. um, I was a finalist in the Kennedy Art Prize <laughs> and he entered and wasn't. So I, I reckon I won the bet. <laughs> that's fantastic like that was when yeah I and and to become a professional photographer basically I just I got to the point where I knew this was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life and and everything else was just going to be placeholding until this happened wow so the 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 Kimberley that's northwest yeah, it's of basically Australia. if you drive from Victoria li- diagonally across Australia, just about when you're about to drop off the edge, that's the Kimberley. So between Darwin and Broome? Per- no, Broome is, is so yeah, ki- yes, but Broome, um, Broome is, is part of the Kimberley, it, yeah. although Derbyites will argue, argue that point. They say that it's the North Pilbara. Um, but anyway, that's an inside joke, and if you don't know it, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. But Broome to Kununurra is the Kimberley. And so it it's, doesn't go all the way to Darwin, but 
um, it's up that end. Yeah. And so it's it's remote, but you yeah. got there in a Mitsubishi, so it's not like you don't need a four-wheel drive to get there or would it help? Uh, they did warn me because I went up for a teaching job and they did warn me that if um, if they had big floods, I wouldn't be able to get through and I'd probably get stuck somewhere because they that when the rivers come up, they go over the roads and sometimes they wash away the roads. So, uh, But it is tar the whole way, like bitumen the whole way. Right. But, yeah, this, they, it can it can get completely cut off. Wow. Mm. And you did that on your own? I went halfway with a friend yeah. who was visiting from Holland. He wanted to see Uluru, so yeah. he came up to there and then I did the rest of it by myself. Wow. And so you you got a teaching – so your background is teaching, right? Yeah. So yeah. you got a teaching job in the Kimberley? Yes. And what were you doing there? I, I'd been teaching secondary, mm-hmm. uh, year 9, 10, 11, 12, and then I got this job teaching grade 5 and 6. It was 14 Indigenous kids. Wow. And um, it was, I'll be honest, it was tough. Yeah. You, you, you just can't imagine what those kids have experienced at such a young age. And, you know, then 10 to 12-year-olds are not old enough to separate home life from school life. So they bring it all to school and all, you know, the the – relationships that their parents all have that all comes out in the club like it was it was really tough and you know as the the thing that people don't realize is there's no escape from all of that like I left at the end of that year and just went oh my god I've learned so much and it's been amazing but I could not do any more they they there's no out like I just can't imagine experiencing that year after year after year right it's just tough so yeah. being um, in at, at, in that community, what yes. do you think um, working with the Indigenous, what did that teach you about the land? So um, probably it just, I was just open to the idea that even though you can't see another person most of the time when you're driving out there, there are people who know it intimately, you know, like they took me, they took me to their special fishing spots or whatever, um, you know, and special places. And and you just know that they've been going there for, I don't know, you know, the, the scientists disagree, but 40, 60,000 years, you know, like this is, this is history. It's just not written down. Yeah. And, um, it just makes you aware that these, you know, ancient places even though it looks like you're the only person on the face of the planet and you're the first person sometimes, you feel like you're the first person to have been there, it just stops you in your tracks with those thoughts and you go, well, actually, no, (laughs) no, there's no way I'm the first person to have been here. Um, And that year was really tough, but then two years later I had a job working for the Kimberley Land Council, um, which was in Derby, so another, um, another town that's, um, a little bit at the end of the road and, but awesome. And I met the most incredible traditional owners. And I think by the time I got there, that was when I really started recognizing that the places have personality and they have feelings. And that sounds really dodgy, but no, I get that. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. Um, I've felt that in certain places. I think I felt it 
um, the most when I was driving around Iceland for some reason that there was like another force or something else. Uh, it's hard to describe without sounding like a nutcase. Yeah, but it is. Uh, th- th- there is that feeling, and you talk a lot about listening. Yep. to nature and yep. um and letting it guide you. But just before I go off on that tangent, yep. I want to yep. know how. So this is two thousand and eight. You start with the. Uh, you do the workshop, is that right? Was it like roughly? No, two thousand eight was the epic uh, drive to okay. in the Kimberley, and then two thousand eleven was the workshop. So tell me what it looks like for, for getting to where you are now with these amazing images that you take. How? What? What was your learning curve? What did you do to well, improve? Well, first and foremost, I have to mention that I worked full time, and that was the only reason that I could go to all those amazing places. So. The last five years I've been um, uh, coordinating the library services for TAFE in the Kimberley um, and um, that was a fantastic job and I will always be grateful for that job because one of the benefits was um, in a, as, a, as, as someone who wasn't directly dealing with students, I could take my holidays, my leave when when I requested it yeah. because there was, you know, it was just a normal work year. It wasn't tied to the academic year like a lot of other jobs in TAFE are. Right. So, um, so yeah, I basically made sure that every time I had leave I travelled <laughs> and I went to crazy places like Patagonia and Namibia and Norway and what was the question? How did you get from there where you're starting oh, off with right. a point yeah, and so, shoot to where okay. you are now? Okay. okay, so point and shoot was um, the end of that year I sent, I inflicted CDs of all my photos to all my friends and family <laughs> and then 2009 I actually came back to Melbourne and requalified as a librarian yeah. and during that year I actually joined the Melbourne Camera Club Right. And the best part about joining the Melbourne Camera Club was I went to all the judging, partly because I entered every month. But, right. You know, and and that really helps because you're more invested than if you just go and sit in. Yeah. And listening to the judges, to, you know, to talk about certain things. So things like leading lines. Obviously, you don't hear about leading lines in a normal conversation. Yeah. You know, you kind of know that that works when you see a you know, a, a, a stream that's meandering off into the distance. You, you understand that your eye follows that, but you don't have a name for it and it's not like you consciously look for it. So things like that, um, I picked up that year listening to all of the different comments that the judges made when they walked around the room and judged everyone's prints. Yeah. I also was really lucky to join an amazing uh, web community called Australian Digital Photo of the Day, POTD. Right. And um, this was before Facebook and MySpace and all the rest of it. So no one was really online yet. In yeah. fact, my mum was a bit worried about how much time <laughs> that I was spending on this virtual reality. With the imaginary um, friends, yeah. Right, with imaginary, <laughs> imaginary friends. And um, they were awesome and I'm still actually in touch with a lot of those photographers. They were fantastic. So just as an example... I had my little point and shoot and there was this amazing photo that seemed to have everything from like literally directly in front of the photographer right off into the distance. And I was like, I I could not do it. I just couldn't make it. I was like, what am I missing? I'm not, I can't do this. And so I, I said something, I was like, 
I just don't get it. I'm so frustrated. How do you get everything in the photo? And he wrote back, Mika, it's called a wide angle lens. (laughs) (laughs) But these are the things that you just don't know, you know, like that you you don't know it unless someone teaches you. So they were my teachers that year and um, they just, I learned so much from them. So after a year doing that, that's when I got the job uh, for the Kimberley Land Council. So I moved up there and was surrounded by the most incredible landscapes and just went everywhere um, in Derby. Uh, the, probably the best compliment I ever got was Derby is kind of considered the poor cousin of Broome by a lot of people, not by Derby people but by other people because it's on the edge of the mud flats and it doesn't have the turquoise water that Broome has. It yeah. has muddy, churned-up water. Um, but it has boabs and boabs oh, are yeah. amazing. They're sexy and trees. Yeah, sexy. they are awesome. <laughs> and they're, they're spiritual. And yeah. I would spend so much time hunting on the mudflats to find the best boab trees at sunset. And um, so, yeah, that was – Derby was fantastic. And, uh, what? yeah, I was going to say the best compliment that someone gave me was I was posting – my photos online and someone said, oh, you live in such a paradise. And I laughed, I laughed. I'm like, oh, my God, everyone in Derby has to read this, seriously. (laughs) And I also got an amazing opportunity. There was a new cafe that opened and the cafe manager asked me if I would put my work in the cafe. Yeah. And it was was at an amazing time and people – bought my work and that was hugely encouraging. Yeah. Um and it was amazing. And so yeah, that that really kind of got me thinking, well maybe I can do this. So then yeah. I got the job in Broome, which was the learning resources coordinator position and Broome, oh my gosh, Broome is a photographer's paradise. Yeah. It's there's like six beaches to choose from for sunrise and sunset. You can basically walk out of work, look up at the sky, go, where are the clouds? I'm going there. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just and same with sunrise. You don't even really need to watch the weather. You just walk outside and look. Because yeah. it's like 15 minutes drive to all of them. Um and so yeah, that was that was amazing. And as I said, um, I I also made sure that every single holidays that I had, I was heading somewhere amazing to take photos. So my life, even though I was working full time, every second that I wasn't at work, I was into photography. Right. And there is no substitute, you will agree with this, yes. there's no substitute for practice. Yeah. It's all about just the hours that you spend learning your equipment because once you can stop thinking about your equipment and you're just looking and reacting and it's natural, that's when you take photos where you're connected to whatever you're photographing because there's no barrier anymore. When you first start out, there's so much to learn about your camera and you you can't be in that moment very well because, because of that barrier. But once you you know, once you've practiced and practiced and practiced so to the point where you don't think about it anymore, that's when you have connection and connectivity with what your subject is. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about that. So um, there's a, a beautiful quote from photographer Robert Frank who says, the eye should learn to listen before it looks. And uh, you talk about listening to the landscape a lot, uh, I think, which is a really uh, beautiful way of thinking. And 
there's something that I like I do and I talk about and I kind of feel like I sound crazy saying this but like a lot of my shoots yeah uh happen intuitively and even the professional stuff that I do I will rock up to set and kind of have a certain idea in my head but it's like it's never how it goes and it's the ones that I shoot with my thinking mind uh, never as great are the ones yeah. that are, are gifted. So it's kind of like I'm uh, not taking the photo, I'm given the shot. Yeah. Yep. Tell me about your process. So um, yeah, it's very finding similar. images. So like let's uh, let put us in a location and walk me through uh, what's going on in your head. So you've, you've, you've talked about, and I t- agree 100%, that moment that you no longer have to think about uh, the f-stop, the shutter speed, camera position, it all happens intuitively and it's much like driving. Like you could yeah. drive for, for 30 minutes and, and then remember that you haven't thought about the driving process. Yes. Kind of you feel like, did I just – nearly yeah, avoided yeah. several you, accidents because I, I wasn't in the, yeah. Little, yeah, same. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and it's, it's that flow state and it's a beautiful place to be. And it's like, you are so in the moment that it, it is like, you're just, um, being led, yeah. uh, to, to like you, you, you're following the light or you're being led, or there's something that just quietly, um, gently nudges you to look around that corner. Yeah, well, a lot of people, um, you know, I've had people come through my exhibition at the moment and they talk about other photographers who wait for hours, sometimes days, you know, for a particular shot. And I have to say to them, no, that's not how that, that that's just not how I do it. Um, when I go to a place, first thing I make sure that I am not putting my camera in front of my face. And so I do try and get there a little bit early and most landscape photographers do anyway when the light is not going off. Because if the light's going off, you're not going to miss the shot because you're trying to listen to the landscape. But you try and get there early and immerse yourself in that place. And I talk about listening because we we visually are so like as humans our sight well as seeing humans our sight is overpowering and you don't listen a lot you know so the birds will go off and you're not you know unless it's a kookaburra you're not really listening but to me the listening is not just about the animals it's also the wind it's also like it's just the the intangibles that you don't see so when I go to a place I try and be open to all of that. And then my attitude is like, it's a dance between the landscape and me and I'm there and I'm bringing my skills, but what, what does the landscape want me to photograph? It's just like a portrait, I guess. Like what, what, show me your best side, show me like where, where is the light at the moment? And you know, what, what am I seeing that I think would be the best side of this personality filled landscape. And I think when you go with that openness, you know, like I'll always have an idea of what I'd like to photograph, but if you go with that openness and you're not closed off and you're not trying to get that shot, like it's amazing what you would miss otherwise. Um, and I go with, you know, in my camera pack, I've got a 15 mil ultra wide, I've got a 21 mil, I've got a standard 2470, and I've also got a 70 to 200. And I take those four lenses everywhere. Yeah. But for exactly that reason, I don't know what the landscape is going to show me. And so when I'm there, it's like, okay, 
where is stuff happening and I look around and make sure I look behind me and around me and in front of me and at that stage usually something happens and then the rest is just shooting. <laughs> so you just know when you know. You yeah. re- you re- it's like recognising an old friend. Is that how it feels? Uh, probably not quite that intimately. Like we're talking about Australian land is so old. Like we don't have a new geological country. This is weathered ancient, mm. you know, and, and really to a certain extent I do feel like the landscape doesn't really care much about me. Like, mm. But it it's it, there is a undertone of presence in a lot of places. Some places it's incredibly powerful, and I think that's what you're probably talking about in Iceland. Like there's a place in Karajini that's unfortunately called Kermit's Pool, and it's the most um, spiritual place I've ever been. I could sit there for like hours and hours and hours and just not think because it's just so strong that there's this presence. Um, But, you know, most places are not quite that strong. But you just, I guess it's just about... Yeah, you know, just being open. I I don't know that there's you can't really generalize that there are places like they're all different. Right. You know? It's not it's not it's just the matter of being open to it. It's not like I get rewarded and someone comes and quietly talks in my ear and says, "Oh, look over this way." You know, it's <laughs> not it's not that strong. Yeah. But it's strong enough for me to make sure that if I, so when I do start thinking about like, you know, what will people think when they see this photo or, um, or, um, you know, this is maybe not an angle that, that like, this is kind of the, the main shot that everyone would take. As soon as I get those kind of thoughts in my head, people thoughts, yeah, reality thoughts, that's when I've, I've lost the connection. So that's when I stop and go, ah, 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 stop, quiet, listen. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I do. Because you can't be having those conversations in your head and be open. It, it's it's not possible to have both. So all the people stuff you got to get out of your head and just be almost like empty. It's interesting that you say that because this is something I've been thinking about for a while now and it's the difference between shooting from the inside out versus shooting from the outside uh-huh. in. You know, so when you're shooting from the outside in, you are driven by this photo is going to be uh, liked by many people. It's going to have this composition, or you go with an idea in your mind to a to a location that you've seen that photo on Instagram, that chocolate box um, cover, and that you need to go and get the same one because you know that that's like an amazing shot, and that's it. But there, it it in doing that. There is no, there is no energy in that shot. It doesn't have a no, life of its you, own, right? And and you're closed off. Mm. Nothing that the environment around you can offer you will be taken in because you're too busy thinking. Yeah, yeah. And so, all right. So you you're out there in in all these amazing places and allowing the shot to be uh, given to you in in yes. some sense. But yes. they're also like. With a point and shoot, there's only so much you can do. So, in terms of your technique, um, what have you developed to, to, in order to to get the look? Like, there is definitely a style to your work. So, um, you know, and and I I don't even know how to answer that question to be honest, Gina, because I just I just I just it's not conscious. Mm. 
it's not like I go out and try and get a Mika shot, but I've often had people say, I knew that was yours before I even saw that it was yours. But I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that. I don't know what that is. So do you think it's just like, because I know with my portraits, it's just that I've done them so many times that I just know when the nose is in the right place or the. Yeah. Yeah. And I think going back to the art, you know, the art background thing, you just know when a composition is working and when it's not like that, that it's, it's people talk about being able to teach composition and I'm a bit, I think if you don't like, that's an encouraging thought, but I think some people just get it. And when you just get it and you just know that something is balanced, even if it looks even if a lot of people would say, I'm not sure why this is balanced because there's, you know, heavy stuff over here and, but you know, it's balanced. Like it just, it just is. And I think that, that kind of, that's the art. Like that's, that's maybe that's why it looks the way it looks is because that's all in there. And I mean, it's not conscious. It's just, it just works and it looks right. So, (laughs) all right. What was the moment? Do you remember the that that moment where you went from shooting, uh, as in thinking about okay, I need to do twenty four millimeter lens f eight f eleven. I'll focus here to just taking the photo intuitively. Do, do you remember that shot and how you felt and what did that look like? I'm not being very helpful, but no. But I do remember how frustrating it was to have to think about all those Mm. things. And what I can say to people who do get a bit frustrated with all those things, because it is mind-bogglingly complicated, is going on a workshop with photographers who do know what they are doing. Like going on a landscape photography workshop was the best thing that I could have done because they will, they know that stuff and, and they will come and look at your camera and go, well, why have you got it on that? And you'll be like, uh, I don't know. Mm. And they'll be like, well, this is why you should put it. So, you know, in landscapes, it's pretty specific about what, what F stop to use for what environment, you know, like it's very rare apart from Astro that you'll have a shallow depth of field yes. uh, in landscape, you know, because really when you are looking at a landscape, you want everything to be sharp because yep. it, you're seeing all of it. You're, 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 as a viewer, you want everything to be in focus because you're seeing the whole thing and, and the, the photographer isn't drawing your eye to a specific subject. It's saying like the photographer is saying, look at this beautiful place. So things like that you but they become pretty standard pretty quickly yeah um you know like uh, <laughs> but there is a funny story about this too can i tell the funny yeah, story about of course. this too so i went on that workshop and um and christian fletcher again these fellows these three had a huge impact on my oh, development legends. by the way yeah. yeah so christian was like ah oh, really, you just need to be on F8, F9 most of the time. Um, he didn't explain why. Yeah. Well, maybe he did and I just didn't listen. It just didn't make sense to me at that time. But I took that as gospel. Right. And that's not a very good idea. If someone tells you a certain aperture for a certain situation, it's really important to understand why. Years later, no, well, let me to talk about it another way. Then I went on a workshop with 
the legendary photographer Art Wolf. It was right. also with Australian legendary photographer um, Ignacio Palacios, wow. and that's why I went. But I did get to meet Art, Art Wolf, and he was like F11 all the way, F11, <laughs> F11, F11. Then I went to um, Namibia and yep. met the amazing Hogard Milan, who is an awesome person and an awesome photographer. And he was like, F-16, F-16, F-16. I was like, okay, I think I really need to sit down and understand why these photographers are saying this. And there is a reason. So there's a lot of lenses that have a sweet spot Mm. at around F-8 and F-9 that actually may be fractionally sharper than F-11. So but you need to test your lens. Like you actually need to do that testing to find out if that's the truth. F11 is a great uh, aperture for most situations and most lenses, but with wide angle lenses, Mm. you can actually push that out to F16 without any loss of detail Mm. or sharpness, but only with wide angle lenses. Uh, If you put a telephoto at F16, you will have a, 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 a lessening of sharpness. So, I guess the thing is um, you're still always still learning and you're, when you get your basics, it's probably a really good idea to get your basics from people who can explain the context so that yeah. you understand that whether it's fact or opinion. Um, and and anyway, so I, I think I'm getting way off track here. No, but, no, um, this is good. It's... <laughs> it's I think going on workshops and listening to what, you know, listening to people who know what they're doing and asking, having the opportunity to ask, like if I was smart enough or maybe if I'd progressed enough, I would have asked, why do you say that? And he probably would have answered because my lenses have sweet spots at F8 and F9. Um, And there's nothing wrong about that. Like I will say between F8 and you know, F16, most lenses will get a very nice landscape photograph, but um, it's it's good to know that there are reasons when you would choose F11 versus F16 and when you would choose F8 and 9 over F11. So anyway, um, that kind of stuff, yeah, it's you're not just going to learn it unless you're a really scientific type person and you want to practice, you know, and do it in a controlled environment. Yeah. What you'll find is your F8 photo looks very much like your F11 photo. Yeah. And so it's it's when other people can explain the context and maybe you do want to go and test it afterwards, but when they can put it in context, that's when you go, oh, okay, well, that makes sense and this is what I'm going to do from now on. Definitely, and uh, I encourage all my students to take their lens out onto a uh, football field or something and maybe bring some stakes and put yeah. like uh, a piece of paper on the top of each stake and test the lens out. Like I know that my 70 to 200, the sweet spot's kind of around F5.6. You know? Really? But yeah, it de- but then it depends on how far you're zoomed and it's going to, and if anyone's interested in this, there is a podcast on focal length. So look in the back catalogue where I explain where the focus area is um, and how 
now that that they you can focus a third of the way in and two thirds yeah, of the way back. Or all yeah. of that is explained. So, I, and I think uh, knowing that and being confident with that means that you can uh, rock up to any situation, whether it's a, a, a landscape or a portrait, and know what. Okay, well, what do I want my shot to look like? Do I want it um, sharp all the way uh, through, or do I want some, you know, the the background to to drop off. Well, I know that you know these these are the uh, these are the apertures that I need to pick. On that, on that, asking the questions. Yeah, I think the reason that your work uh, got good so quickly was the fact that you weren't afraid to ask questions. A lot of people feel like as they're learning and I think um I've I've done this you know before that if you ask that question it makes you look um unintelligent so you won't ask the question even though you're confused by the concept yeah but I think when you're living out remotely and you don't get that opportunity you kind of there's no shame because Mm. the truth is and and I think everyone should just take that attitude because there is no shame like ignorance ignorance is ignorance if you don't know you don't know it doesn't matter why you don't know it's you just don't know it so being able to say yeah I'm not sure about that um is is you can't learn unless you don't know what you don't know I mean unless you do know what you don't know and when you know what you don't know you can but really you can ask those questions and sometimes you don't know the question because you don't you don't even know what's possible. Yeah. And that's why I also think it's a really good idea to do work- workshops with more than one person. Because, oh, yeah. like, for example, I am not a mathematician or scientific person mm. at all. Like, Me too. I, if I never had to deal with numbers, I'd be a very happy woman. All right, so we, we, we cut out for a minute there, but I've got you back. Um, yeah. So where were we? We were talking about doing talking workshops about, with different people. Yeah, that I think it's great to learn from different people because um, everyone has a different approach. It's all the same stuff, but, for example, I don't really like maths and science. Yeah. It's, it doesn't really make sense to me in the way that words and pictures do. So like you were talking about the hyperfocal distance before. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I know there's some really legit science behind it, but that doesn't interest me. I, I just can point to you where in my, in, in my field of view, where I need to focus in order to get the everything in focus. And so like, when I talk about the hyperfocal distance with my group, it's going to be very different to, someone who understands the science. So I guess my recommendation would be learn from different people too. Don't just stick with one person. Find out who thinks the way that you think Mm. because that's where you'll learn the most from because, you know, we we all think differently and and what you don't know, you don't know, and that's that's fine. But when you can meet up with someone who learns the same way as you and understands the world the same way as you, you're going to learn a lot better. Yep. Yeah, it's like yeah. finding that person who speaks. You know, when your you language. meet that teacher, yeah. they speak your language, whereas yeah. all the other teachers were speaking a language that you never understood. And then someone yeah. will say it in a way that you go, oh, oh, oh now I get yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But even with that, 
you know, everyone, <laughs> I, I sound like a broken record, but everyone only knows what they know. Yeah. So it's good to shop around as well and find yeah. out what other people know. Um, yeah. Because there are some incredible photographers and, you know, I do know that there are some people who like to go on the same people's workshops because they always learn and they pick up new stuff and it's fun and all the rest of it. But I do think you narrow your learning to like once you get to a certain point, you you, you narrow your learning to what that person knows. So yeah. I think it's great to – and, you know, in Australia we've got some awesome landscape mm. photographers who are doing workshops. So, yeah, go and – Learn from different people. Yeah, that's that's a but good yeah, point. But yeah, find that find yeah, but find that one person that really talks your language in the beginning because there is so much to learn in the beginning, and it's better to learn it from someone who just gets it the same way you do. Cool. Um, all right. So in your in your photography, I can sort of see that there's a couple of different styles things that you do um, technically in terms of like the elevation. So there's the stuff that you do from the ground, you know, the beautiful landscapes at ground level, but you also do a lot of beautiful aerial photography and you, Yay. Yeah, and you made a comment <laughs> that threw me also, again, this was at the uh, Bright Festival of Photography when we were on stage together, you talked about uh, the disconnect you feel with drone photography. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Well, I haven't actually, I'm talking a little bit hypothetically because I haven't actually used a drone, but mm. for me, first and foremost, photography is the experience. Yeah. And that's why listening to the land is so important because it's, it's, it's memorable. You, you remember what you were doing when you took that photo. You remember like the emotion of it, all the rest of it. When you, and, and I have to mention that my background in sport, I love adrenaline. Yeah. Um, so I, I have had various uh, sporting um, experiences involving skiing, gymnastics, diving, uh, bobsleigh, um, just loved high adrenaline stuff. And so uh, the first point is I just don't think I would get that same thrill of the experience putting a drone up in the air right. um, versus going up in a helicopter or a light plane. I mm. love flying. And I do think that especially with aerial photography, you're working without a subject. It's mm. very much about the shapes, patterns, colours, textures, lines, patterns, you know, that it's very much about elements rather than subjects. Mm. So to connect with your viewer through that medium I think is a lot more difficult because, you know, there's firstly there's no person, so there's no facial expression. Right. But secondly, there's not even a magnificent subject to connect. It's literally just these combined elements. So in order to and, – and we did say – we both agreed through our different ways at the Bright Festival of Photography, all of us agreed that it's very much about connecting with the viewer, hmm. photography, you know, the, the the highlight of photography and the success of photography is very much about connecting with the people who are viewing our work. And I just can't imagine that that thrill and love and in, enjoyment that I, I get. I, I imagine that that kind of comes through in my aerials and I just can't imagine that it would if I sent a drone up in the air because I wouldn't be feeling it. Yeah. How can you convey something that you don't feel? So I definitely admire um, a lot of drone photography, mm. but I just can't, I just, I just can't imagine 
doing it because, well, maybe when I'm completely broke and destitute and can't afford to go up in a helicopter anymore, maybe I'll change my mind. But for now, um, just the thrill of the experience is very much part of the photography. So, so that that's a good answer. Uh, just yeah. on that, the the I was surprised. Like I was asking about, like, how do you fund these helicopter and plane trips? And and I thought it would cost a lot more than it does. And it's actually quite reasonable. Uh, it's it's expensive, but like when you you know think about hiring a studio for portraits and that, it, it it's 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 not that over the top. So like. Is you just factor that in, and how how long are you up there, like in a chopper? How, how- yeah, so um, just ballpark. Um, you know, you can like, choppers are more expensive than like, planes, but mm. choppers you can take the doors off. Blah, that makes plane. me just. <laughs> oh, yuck. That just scares me to death. I'm not nah, good with heights. Nah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the, the chopper's more expensive but it's more manoeuvrable and yeah. um, you can hover, which you can't do in a plane because you'd fall out of the sky. I'd be hovering ball- over a sick bag. That's <laughs> what I'd be doing. <laughs> but ballpark, you're looking at about – 1400 to 2000 an hour. An um, hour. So if there was yeah. a how and many people can you get in? 90 minutes. Sorry. Oh that's an an hour and a half. And are you on your own or are you get getting that with other No, so I have never done a shoot on my own and it's because of the cost. Yeah. And I have to at this point mention my awesome partner in crime, my friend Tanya Melkin who uh, has he's, she's a photographer was up in the Kimberley, is now up in Darwin. Um, because she lived in Kununurra and I lived in Broome for a long time, um, we would fly together. So a lot of a lot of my aerial work has been with Tanya. Yeah. And um, we also both had the same camera body, which helped a lot with discussing settings and what was the most appropriate for aerial work. But, yeah, so we – we would shoot together to cut the costs, halve the costs. Yeah. Um, because yeah, it is really expensive to do by yourself. But as you say, you know, like you you factor that in because there's certain places like Broome, for example, at low tide, there's nothing else like it in the world. Yeah. So you know, when you talk about saving up for a trip overseas to see a place that's only overseas, it's no different. Mm. You know, like Going up over Roebuck Bay, that you'll never see those colours, those shapes, those patterns anywhere else. Mm. We we actually, Tanya and I just went to Iceland together on a trip, same reason, mm. um, and we we had the most amazing time, but I won't even tell you publicly how much it cost because it cost an insane amount of money to hire the plane. Right. And but you can't get these photos anywhere else. So you really just have to look at all your options and go, well, can I afford this? And if I can, you know, th- this is what I have to do. Yeah. Because so, there's no other way to do it. Or all right, so there is a little bit more pressure now on you when you're, you know, you've just dropped fifteen hundred bucks to to get a chopper or a plane to go up, and you don't want to be botching the shot. So when when there is a bit more financial pressure on you, and it's not to say there isn't pressure when you're, you know, on the ground trying to get the shot, is it still intuitive and or yes. and okay? But yeah, did you but, ever botch the settings when you were up there and not come back with anything? Uh, 
not recently. So there are things you can, yeah, so you pretty much – you, you know the settings. It's got to be fast enough. That's the primary thing. You, and you're not going to fly in rotten weather. But on the other hand, aerial photography, you don't need the magic light as much as you do for traditional landscape photography because the colours and shapes and patterns, you, like the, the sun is essentially over your shoulder anyway. Mm. You're looking down. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, so the light is not such a huge factor. So as long as... As long as you don't have um, storms and you can't fly because the you know the turbulence or whatever, you, you're actually the, the weather becomes less of a priority um, than normal landscape photography. So there there's that, um, but also like as long as your shutter speed is fast enough, then you're pretty much good to go because. You're shooting a flat plane, essentially. Yeah. You've got so you don't have that depth of field issue. So you can actually shoot at about five point six with right. no problem, as long as you're focusing in the center of your image, because yep. otherwise, if you're focusing on an edge, the other edge is going to be out of focus. Right. But but you know, so some in some ways the settings become less complicated. And basically, like I choose manual focus lenses because I can just put it on infinity. Because as long as you're flying at fifteen hundred, two thousand feet and above. Infinity is going to be the correct. Wait, so point. does a chopper go to that high? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so all right, are you legs out the edge, over the edge? Oh, I, I'm hanging out. Apparently, You're insane. the only way. Apparently, the only way that you can leave a chopper oh. is by jumping. Apparently, the dy- the aerodynamics is such that it will keep you in. And, and actually that's a good point because if you stick your camera out, it, you, you, your camera will want to fly backwards. So you, you actually, you know you don't want to be out far. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, yeah, so there's, a, there's a, a, a calm area and then there's like a barrier and then as soon as you stick your camera out in that, it's like, whoa, woof. Don't want to do that again. So, so how how you are you how are you controlling? So what are you? So obviously you're harnessed in. I would be yep. strapped to the pilot to the to the everything. Fifteen. It's just a normal harness. seat belt, right? Um, <laughs> and then, um, okay. So let's just say that someone listening, just someone says, "Oh, I've got my chopper. Let's go up." And you want to get like absolutely yep. nail the shot. What would you yep. just say? Like, okay, you're going up. It's first time. This is what okay, I'd set well, my camera first, to. So most people firstly ask about lenses. Yeah. Um, you don't want a zoom lens. No. Because you're not really going up high enough to warrant it. And secondly, you don't want a wide lens really unless you want – like the thing is with a wide, you're going to get the, the the chopper's landing legs yeah. in it, um, you know, if you shoot down. How much of the sky do you really want? Um, you know, you're really kind of focusing on the land. So like for me, I do abstract aerial and yeah. that's intimate. I'm not even including the horizon. So for me, a hundred mil, 50 mil lens are great. Yeah. Um, but for most people, 2470 or the equivalent is going to be the best lens to take. Um, and in terms of settings, oh, and if you can take a manual, fo- like a prime lens, yeah. a manual focus lens, that's going to save you a fair bit because to autofocus at that speed, at that height, 
you know, like that's, that's, that's putting a lot of pressure on your camera. If you can just stick it on infinity and it's sharp, then that's going to save you. Are you taping it up so that it doesn't move around? No, I just, I just, I just um, have it like permanently wedged up against. Isn't there like um, a little bit of creep that if you're leaning okay, over? So, yeah. So in terms of infinity, you mean that infinity is not infinity on some some lenses? Is that no, what you're I'm just say? like no? when you're when you're pointing your camera down at the yeah. ground, there yeah. are some lenses that are like may not be uh, built as well, and so that the, the, there's creep where it'll just like if it's a zoom lens, uh, not a prime, uh, where you've set the focus point, it'll start to drop. Uh, and it'll change. So say you've got your 70 to uh, 24 to 70 at 50, uh, as you're pointing it down, it it might just extend a little bit more to 52 or 55. And uh-huh. then the focus will change because you're being, you're moving around and the, the wind yeah. and all of that. So that's not a factor. Well, this is kind of why I use the manual yeah. lenses because then, then they're, yeah, then basically, inf- like you can't go further than infinity on yeah. the manual, yeah. like on a good manual lens. Just for people who are listening, an uh, um, autofocus lens by the way that it's designed has to has to have further than infinity yeah. because when you focus, it'll go out and then back. Yeah. And so it has to have that out. So f- f- it's only manual focus lenses that – where infinity can be infinity because they don't have that necessity. So if you're taking a 2470, for example, it's probably a really good idea to tape it at infinity. Yeah. As you're saying, because yeah. you won't be able to find infinity. Yeah. But I've never done, I've never done that because really, yeah. And, and yeah. are you, are you using brace techniques just to steady and no, 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 I'm just having you're just a, a great nut. time. No. I'm just having fun <laughs> and just making sure that my camera is not getting any of the vibration of the wind. That is important. Yes. So how do so, you do that? Well, you just stay out of the slipstream. Okay. As long as you're not yeah. pushing your camera out into the wind, yeah. it's no different to like it's there's this is what I'm saying. It's perfectly calm. Well, it's not perfectly calm. There is a bit of wind inside the chopper, but it's nothing you know, nothing that needs that you really need to worry about. You just need to make sure that your shutter speed is high enough and your ISO is high enough. So usually what I do is I put my focus point in the centre of the image, yep. set my aperture, set it on aperture priority, F5.6 or F7, yep. um, and then I, in the Nikon and the Cam, Canon, I believe, also has this, there's a um, ISO sensitivity setting where you can set the variable ISO and shutter speed. And yep. I have my minimum shutter speed at one one thousandth and my maximum ISO at 3,200. And then I let the camera choose okay. what the appropriate shutter speed and ISO is so that, yeah, so that I'm not thinking about my camera. Okay. And are there ideal weather conditions for going up? Is, is a storm like, do, do you want to be under clouds where it's the light is softer or like, how does that work? I, I've I've managed to get some great photos um, on an overcast day, but it actually is better to have the light um, it, because the light creates the depth and yep. the dimension. And yep. you're always struggling in aerial photography, abstract aerial photography, to create a sense of depth because it is flat. Yeah. So that little bit of light makes a really big difference. It is if if you're 
if you know what you're doing, sunrise and sunset, you're always going to get those amazing long shadows and that is going to improve, you know, if there's a tree with a long shadow or you know what I mean. Like yeah. that, that yeah. does make it a lot more beautiful but then you're it's a much lower lighting situation so you really need to know what you're doing. And I would suggest that anyone like who's trying to, who's, who's investing and going up for the first time, just go in the middle of the day for your first one. So midday. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, just because that way you, you're going to get shots. If you go at sunrise or sunset, your first shoot, you might not have your shutter speed high enough and you might not realise it and then you come back, mm. you know, with nothing and that's devastating. Oh, so. yeah. There's no do-overs. My God. No. Um, no. All right. So on that, what – so – just generally, what are your favourite weather conditions to shoot in? Are there or is it like... Yes, 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 yes. But you mean for aerials or you mean for landscape? Both. Landscape, obviously, I mean, anyone who's shot landscape, you know that sunrise and sunset are the best. You, you just get better colour mm. and more colour. And so I rarely shoot in the middle of the day when I'm shooting landscapes, usually the middle of the day I use for scouting Yes, and then I'll go back at sunrise or sunset, depending on whether it's facing east or west or whatever, um, to get the shot. For aerial photography, as I've said, it's not such a big deal. And where in the, like the shots that I've got of Roebuck Bay, the tides are so much more important than the weather. So you you know the any tides that are the super low tides that's when I'm going to go. It's if if the weather is a bit ordinary, well, it doesn't really matter. But you just it's underwater ninety percent mm. of the time. So if you decide to go at sunset, but it's underwater, you're just not going to get the pictures, even though it's beautiful light. Yeah, um, it, it, you're not going to see what you've gone up to see. So. Yeah, I know I'm making it sound very complicated, but there are a lot of factors um, and it just depends on where you shoot. So in Iceland, for example, we had two shoots. The first was um, in daylight and at the time we actually thought it was a negative because there there were times when one of the two of us, because we were sitting on opposite sides of the plane, oh, and I will say usually both sit on the same side because that way you're you're not having to do a loop for the other person to get the same shot. Right. If there's two of you go yeah. on the same side of the plane. But in this situation we couldn't and we were on uh, the opposite sides of the plane. And so when one person was shooting with the sun behind, the other one was shooting into the sun. And right. that seemed a bit ordinary until the next flight it was overcast and you know I just realized wow there is a big difference when the light was out we got amazing depth without that light with the overcast skies you just don't get the same depth we got lovely color yeah but just not the dimensionality so that was a big lesson to me um it it, yeah it's (laughs) When you're out there, it's a bit tricky because, you know, you'll see an amazing subject and you'll want to shoot it, but if the light's in the wrong position, you know, you have to manoeuvre around to get it into the right position and there's just a lot to think of when you're up in the sky. Right. But, um, yeah, having a bit of sunlight is definitely a good thing, not a bad thing. Fantastic. 
Um, all right. Uh, just a couple more questions. Uh, do you have a favourite focal length? Do, do you have one just that you just keep going <laughs> back to? Yeah, okay. So I have to agree with Art Wolf that my go-to now is F11. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, my focal length. Yeah, and a Sorry, focal length. It's my, all right. Okay. You've got a favourite F-stop. I've got one oh, too. Got so yeah, F-stop, yeah. Um, but on the wide angles, it's F-16. Thank yeah. you, Hogard. Um, my favourite focal length, no, because it just depends when I go into that place, it just depends what it's saying. So if the sky is just amazing, I'll chuck on my wide angle and, yeah. and you know, my, even like a broom and – uh, and astrophotography, especially like the aurora or whatever, it's all about the sky and yeah. you want to use your 15 mil so that you can get everything in. Yeah. But your 15 mil is going to make a mountain look small from a distance. Yes. So then you're going to want to chuck on your 70 to 200 so that you can go into 200 and, and you know, shoot that mountain as if it was a stone's throw away instead of all the way over the valley. And that's at so F no, sixteen. You'll always do those. Uh, so we're not the telephoto. So the telephoto would be F eleven, and F11. I wouldn't go much higher than, or much um, narrower than F eleven because there, I have seen now um, what happens after in the telephoto. It drops off very quickly in sharpness. Do, are you Canon or Nikon? Nikon. Uh, interesting because my Canon 70 to 200, I found the sweet spot. And this is because I do a lot of cast shots where I might have, you know, people at the very front of the frame and there might be four or five meters be, be, between, you know, the, the person at the front and the person at the back. And yep. uh, F14 is my sweet spot. Okay. Hmm. Well, this is exactly what I'm saying. Like, listen to people and, and get your basics, but then get to know your equipment because your equipment. There's even differences between this, like different, the same lens. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. Tanya and I used to both sh- shoot with a twenty four seventy. Hers was sharp, mine wasn't. Yeah. Like I hate that diff- focal. I yeah. hate that lens with a. I'm so racist <laughs> against the twenty four to seventy. It's not funny, and I, I there's no there's there's no reason why. It's just <laughs> in my DNA. I don't understand it because I know it's a good lens. I just cannot okay, well, relate to I, it. I just needed I to share that. <laughs> I didn't like mine either, but I actually had dinged it a bit and I yeah. think that was part of the problem. And right. I just recently bought a new one and Nikkor has a 2470 that has vibration reduction. Ah. It's a newer model and that lens is awesome. So yes, I've gone from it being my like I would have happily chosen my Zeiss 21 over the 2470 most of the time yeah. in landscape, but it is handy to have a zoom yes. lens, you know, so that you can not change your lenses all the time. So you yeah. can actually get that shot first and then choose the appropriate lens. But so I, I love the 21, but sometimes, sometimes you need it to be a bit more intimate than wide. So the 2470 is good. And this 2470 is great. Fantastic. All right, and uh, just and that's to, the lens to finish that. That's the lens that's on my camera most of the time. Like right. I switch to the other lenses, but the twenty four seventy is my standard on the camera lens. Okay, great. Um, some tips for beginners. Yeah, just don't get too frustrated. It takes a while to get to know your camera. Just practice and talk to people and 
test things out and go out when it's not awesome light and practice so that when it is awesome light, you'll be in a position to actually get it. Go back to spots that you know, like, because then you, you, those settings will become familiar. Yeah. And then you can actually be in the moment and photograph the great light when it happens. I think that's yeah. a really good exercise. I do that whenever I'm in a, um, a new place. Uh, and I try and now I used to like dip in and out of places for two days and now I sort of try and base myself for five days in the same spot and what I've been doing is I go back to the same spot morning mid-morning midday afternoon and you yeah know, I'm, I'm I'm shooting people but there is a background and just to see how different the light is and you're I'm always surprised by huh I never thought that would look like that at this time and I kind of like it and I wouldn't have ever thought to go at that time. So you learn a lot, a lot about light by just doing – so even if you've got as a uh, a 30-day project – the tree at the end of your street. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And you've, I've seen you do that with, uh, there's one of the, there's, there's a, what, what are those beautiful sexy trees that you photograph? Boabs. Boabs. Have you done one in spring and one in winter? Yeah. That so is there's, gorgeous. There's a, there's a beautiful big boab tree on the edge of the Derby mudflats and unfortunately um, locals were driving around the base of it so now they've big built a big old fence. Ugh. So for those who love my boab tree, the dinner camp tree, um, just be aware that now it doesn't look quite the same. Mm. But, um, but yeah, shooting the same thing in different light at different times of day, like you can use any app, you know, with photo pills, photo, the photographers are very ephemeris and find out where the sun comes up and find out where the sun goes down. But there's no substitute for actually being there and seeing what the light does. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. For sure. Fantastic. And uh, just to finish up, where can people find you? Uh, Okay. So I primarily put my work on Facebook. Um, So that's uh, facebook.com forward slash Mika Boynton Photography. And it's spelled M. Oh, well, you'll have it. M-I-E-K-E. I'll put all these links in the show notes. Awesome. And then um, I'm a bit of a, I, I don't, like spending too much time on social media. So then I usually put exactly the same thing on Instagram, yep. <laughs> but it's always Facebook first. Yep. Um, and I do have a website, makeaboynton.com. Fantastic. And uh, your prints are actually for sale, so I'll put a link in yes, the show notes for those. Thank you. Uh, I'll just act as your rep now. You're and awesome. <laughs> you're going to be doing some uh, workshops next year, is that right? I am. I am. Um, I'm very excited about that. Um, having been a teacher and said, I'll never go back to teaching. It's exciting to actually be teaching what I love. And I'm very passionate about that. And I look forward to sharing my view of the world with people. And um, yeah, hopefully people will go away with better understanding of their camera, but also a different way of, of thinking about photographing landscapes. Fantastic. Well, I could uh, chat to you for another hour, but like I can't make these podcasts too long. So I think I might get you back on the show, but uh, thank you so much. It's been amazing chatting to you. You too, Gina. And I look forward to catching up at some stage. That'll be cool. For sure. Thanks. Bye.
Mika Boynton, that is so cool. Mm. I love how that, you know, she she bothers to actually hang out of helicopters and planes and stuff. But <laughs> I'm interested to know, Gina, why why do you not find that interesting? I would have not imagined in, no, that you I would. find it fascinating. Although no, then, not, why wouldn't you do it? Oh, because why I'm not an it? adrenaline junkie. I don't like but it's not hanging even... out of planes. I don't not. I don't like um, roller coasters, going <laughs> fast, hanging out of planes. N- n- no, none of that. But respect to Mika for doing that. Is it because you're scared that what, you're going to you, fall out? What's that? Is it because you're scared you're going to fall out? I don't know, Val. It's There's like, a seatbelt, you know. Like, like, you know, you can I'm hang on to you. things. Okay. You're an Ooh. adrenaline junkie? <laughs> no, I'm not. I just think that. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's other ways mm. to have fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 good on Mika for doing it and uh yeah, I, I like I just adore her images. Like that there's uh some in the show notes, but please do yourselves a favor and um check out her website and have a good look through all her galleries, uh Mikaboynton.com. That's M-I-E-K-E-B-O-Y-N-T-O-N.com. She's also on Instagram and Facebook. Well worth checking out. Uh, she's got uh, an exhibition. I think that will be over when this comes out, but uh, definitely there is also workshops coming soon, so worth checking out. I'm just, yeah, amazing. All right, Amazing so we'll put work. all of the links to all of those in the show notes, which you can find at GinaMilitia.com. And apart from GinaMilitia.com, Gina, where can we find you online? So at GinaMilitia on Instagram and also on Twitter. I'm in the Facebook community and it's called So You Want to Be a Photographer Facebook group, Val. I botch it every time. Is that right? <laughs> Do I get it right? Just search for. I'm in there all the time though. <laughs> If you'd like to join the podcast listener community on Facebook, it's free to join. We'd love to have you in there. Just search for So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram and at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer. For more information, free resources, and Gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer, visit ginamilitia.com.